Welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica, and I am so glad that you're here with me this morning. Well, I say morning. You could be listening to this at nighttime or in the middle of the day. Whenever it is, I'm glad you're here with me and you're listening. We started school this week at my house, and for a lot of people in our area in Texas, this was the first week of school. Everyone survived. Like I told you last week, I have a daughter going to junior high. We made it through the first week of junior high. Everything was good. I had a good first week with my new kiddos in my class, and my younger daughter had a great first week. So I hope if you started, you had a great first week of school, and everyone survived. Let's start talking about today's episode. Today's episode is going to sound more like a slapstick comedy and probably the plot to a movie than an actual crime. The two men involved were not criminals and had never been involved in a crime before. So it makes sense that when the two decided to embark on their own crime spree, they did nothing right. And the further we get into this, in today's episode, you're going to see they definitely were not criminal masterminds. We're going to start our episode today in Austin in 1987. Austin and pretty much the whole state of Texas was suffering from the oil bust that stemmed from the oil embargo OPEC imposed on the United States in 1973. So I'm going to go ahead and apologize. We're doing a little bit of a history lesson before we actually get started in our story. But I feel like this will kind of help set the scene for the financial shape Texas was in in the 1980s and kind of give you a little background on why it was in the shape it was in. <clears throat> so Americans in the 70s, Americans in 1973, after OPEC imposed this oil embargo, Americans were forced to wait in long lines in gas stations because oil was scarce. And so they, it was being rationed. People were waiting in lines. And, you know, before then, Americans had taken this commodity for granted. You know, they pulled up to the pump, they got their gasoline, and they went on about their business. But now... It was scarce. Well, in response to the oil embargo, independent oil producers in Texas said, oh, we're not doing this. The rest of you guys, you can stand around at these pumps, but we're going to handle it. So the independent oil producers in Texas took out millions of dollars in loans to buy their own equipment needed to drill all over the state. Well, this was great for Texas economy. Because not only now did the independent drillers have the ability to produce their own oil, that also meant hundreds of jobs opened up across the state of Texas. You needed people to run those drilling rigs. You needed geologists and landmen to find those underground reservoirs of oil. So it wasn't just the oilmen getting rich in Texas. The Texas oil boom was supplying jobs all over the state. And Texans were riding high financially everywhere. Now, because all these people had new jobs and had money to spend, that also meant that new businesses sprung up everywhere to keep up with the demands of the luxury items that these 
nouveau riche people were wanting to buy. You know, people had cash and they wanted to spend it. So on top of that, car dealerships opened, jewelry stores, and real estate development was going on everywhere because that meant people wanted new homes and they wanted fancy hotels and office buildings. So everyone, whether you were in oil or you were in some other business, it was helping everyone. But here's the thing. All that profit was happening and people were spending left and right. But if you know anything about oil, it's a very fickle business. And eventually, the bottom fell out. In 1986, the price of oil dropped from $31.77 a barrel to $12.51 a barrel. Now, that wasn't as low as it hit in the 70s when it was $3.73 a barrel, but this still plunged oil producers into massive debt because that $12.51 a barrel was not going to cover all the bills that they had incurred when they bought all that equipment. So oil producers were in massive debt and bankers started calling those loans in and people started claiming bankruptcy. Well, not only was this a problem for the oil producers, but that meant all those business owners who had started their new businesses selling all those luxury items tanked also. No one needed a Rolex anymore, and they sure weren't looking to buy one. They weren't trying to buy new cars either. Everything was the opposite. All those people that had made all that money now were trying to sell everything off. Pawn shops were getting Rolexes, cars. Some were even trying, some people were even trying to bring helicopters, personal helicopters to the pawn shops so they could try to make some cash and sell off that debt. Well, this is where we find our two criminal masterminds, Howard Farr and Kevin Hutchinson. They too were suffering from the oil bust of the 80s in Texas. So let me give you a little background on both men. Howard Farr was 56 years old in 1987. He was trim and nice looking, and most of his friends and business associates called him the all-American man. His children looked up to him. They thought he was a great dad. He had always provided for them. He had been involved in their lives. His wife, they had a great, by all accounts, everyone, said they had a wonderful all-American family, and Howard was a great guy. Howard was born in Waco, and he joined the Air Force after attending Baylor University and reached the rank of first lieutenant before he got out of the Air Force. In the early 1970s, he was a coordinator for Texas's drug abuse program, and he was a Boy Scout troop leader. He liked to boast that his troop produced 18 Eagle Scouts in six years. Howard's wife, Sally, owned a vintage clothing store, and at this point in 1987, their son and daughter were both grown and living on their own. So life was good for the Fars. Howard had been selling cars in Austin for 10 years and he had been very successful. But like many Texas Texans in 1987, Howard was facing a personal financial crisis. 
And no one, like I told you, could afford a car at that point. People were trying to climb out of their own debt, and Howard was in the same boat. In 1986, Howard and a partner opened their own dealership retailing and wholesaling used cars. They were doing really well until he and his partner had a falling out, and then Howard went to work for himself. On his own, Howard didn't fare as well. At this point, he had a five-figure bill that he owed the IRS, and he had figured out pretty quickly that he wasn't going to be able to sell enough cars to pay his debts off. So, Howard decided that he should turn to crime to earn some quick money to pay everything off. And he decided that he would stick with cars since he knew the car business really well. In November of 1987, Howard got in touch with a car dealer on the West Coast. This car dealer dealt in special merchandise, and that specialty merchandise was stolen cars. The dealer said he knew a guy in Austin who had fallen on hard times himself, and he might be interested in helping Howard out with his new side business. And this is where Kevin Hutchinson enters the picture. Kevin Hutchinson was articulate, intelligent, and he made a great first impression. He had big ambitions, but he didn't really like to work very hard to make those ambitions a reality. He also had really bad luck. Kevin was 27 at the time and was hoping to become the next Eddie Murphy. He was raised in Austin by his grandmother and mother. His grandmother worked as a maid and his mother was a professional with the state agency. After Kevin graduated from high school, he worked a series of jobs. Some of them got him closer to his dreams of show business. For a while, he worked at the nightclub phases as a disc jockey, but the club folded. After that, he got a job at a local radio station where he had a stint on the air, but Kevin had a bad marijuana habit that caused problems in his work. It's hard keeping it together on air when you're stoned. So the station manager fired him. Then Kevin went to computer school for a while and got a part-time job at some of the hotels downtown. While he was working downtown, he developed a cocaine habit to go with his pot smoking. It didn't take long for his drug habit to become more than his income could sustain, and this led to an arrest in Dallas for shoplifting. Kevin came home to Austin and got a job at the Fancy Metropolitan Club, a private dining and exercise club where he worked his way up from busboy to lunchtime deli manager. But Kevin didn't listen to management when they told him that the elite clientele wanted light lunch fare. After all, they were there to work out. They were watching their figures. He didn't, they didn't want fatty foods. But Kevin kept serving high-calorie salads full of mayonnaise and soon found himself out of a job again. Now, Kevin says that he had lots of bad luck. But let's be honest. Kevin didn't listen to anybody, and he made poor decisions. Kevin needed money also, so he agreed to go to work with Howard for some fast cash. The first car the two stole was a Datsun 300ZX. Howard said they would steal it, and Kevin would drive it to the dealer on the West Coast, and he would pay them $500 for it, and then the two would split it. Howard went to the lot where the Datsun was parked, and ask if he could take it for a short test drive. While he was out on his little drive, he stopped off and made a copy of the key. That night, after the lot closed, the pair snuck back onto the lot, and Kevin drove off in the car. Kevin set off for Los Angeles, California, 
driving a stolen gold 300ZX without a legal driver's license. Howard had asked him when they first got together to talk about the job if he had a legal driver's license. And Kevin laughed at him and said, yeah, he had one. Because in Kevin's words, he didn't want to miss out on the opportunity to drive such a cool car. Kevin treated his trip out to California like a vacation. He visited Grauman's Chinese Theater and put his hands into his idol Eddie Murphy's handprints. But the rest of the trip was not as lucrative as he and Howard hoped it might be. The dealer didn't have the $500. So Kevin hung out in California for a few more days waiting around for the money, but he never got paid. But the dealer was nice enough to buy him a plane ticket back to Austin. When Howard picked him up at the airport, he told him that he had sent four more cars to Los Angeles, but he only got $100 each for him. He would have done better just selling them outright. It makes me wonder, did Howard get in touch with this West Coast dealer and say, hey man, I'm sending you cars. Do you have the money for them right now? Or did they just go out there willy-nilly and hoping for the best? You're going to see this isn't the end of Howard and Kevin's poor criminality. The pair decided that they needed a new plan. They decided they were going to stop working for the dealer in California and they were going to start working for themselves. And they were going to keep their new enterprise Texas-based. This time, Kevin was supposed to deliver a stolen maroon Corvette to a customer in Dallas. Howard told him, drive to Temple, spend the night there, and then get back on the road early in the morning when you're less likely to be seen. So Kevin rolled into the driveway where the customer and his wife greeted him. The customer decided that this would be the perfect time to let his wife know that the new car they purchased was actually a stolen car. Well, you can imagine how this went over with the wife. Needless to say, she blew a gasket and told Kevin to get the hell out of her driveway. She didn't want anything to do with that stolen car and she wanted it off her property immediately. So again, they were out of money because the deal had gone bad. Told you, not criminal masterminds. On his way back to Austin, Kevin stopped and waxed a hatchie to buy a cup of coffee. Now, Kevin didn't pay attention to anybody that was parked in the parking lot and didn't even notice there was a police officer there at the convenience store, too. I don't know about any of you guys, but if I was driving a stolen Corvette around, I would make sure that the police were not in the area. I would definitely try to avoid that. Not Kevin, though. He didn't notice that police car sitting there in the parking lot. He just pulled in and parked, walked into the convenience store, and then, uh-oh, there was the police officer at the counter paying for his food and coffee. When the officer drove out of the parking lot, he eyeballed that Corvette, and he drove by real slow. This made Kevin really nervous that maybe the officer had noticed that stolen Corvette. And Kevin only made it down the road to Hillsboro where there was an officer waiting on him. The officer in Waxahachie had run a check on the license plate. It turned out the Corvette had been stolen from Howard Farr's parking lot. Now, I feel like this should be criminal rule number one. Don't report the car that you helped steal from your own dealership lot stolen. Just saying, Howard. Kevin spent the night in the Travis County Jail then called Howard the next morning to come bail him out. 
on his permanent contact statement when they booked him in jail that night, he listed Howard Farr as one of his permanent contact people right next to his grandma. Again, another red flag. Don't list your accomplice on your jail info. Well, Howard showed up. He said he wanted to press charges on Kevin, but he also paid his bail and his attorney fees. Interesting, right? The district attorney's office decided the whole situation was so convoluted, they didn't even want to mess with it. They dismissed the case and just kind of acted like it didn't happen. Now the pair had even less money than when they started. For them, crime definitely did not pay. But they weren't quitters. They weren't giving up yet. So they decided they would try again. Howard gave Kevin $250 to take a car to Laredo, where Kevin was going to meet up with someone that he knew and try to sell the car. Again, y'all, they made no plans with these people on the other end. They just went on down the road hoping for the best. But when Kevin got to Laredo, it became obvious that the people of Laredo were worse off than the people of Austin. Ladies with their children were sitting on curbs trying to sell stuff. It was dirty. It was filthy. The people were poor and pitiful. Kevin even told one reporter that Laredo made him feel sad. So he called Howard. He said, these people don't have any money. They're poorer than we are. No one's going to buy a car down here. So Howard told Kevin, you spent way too much of my money. Just come on home. By December, Howard had finally decided that stolen cars was not working out for them. They weren't making any money. I mean, I don't know why he felt like this. They'd already bombed out how many times? So he told Kevin he had a new idea of how they could get some cash. He'd been driving around Austin, checking out banks. At first, Kevin told Howard he was crazy. How in the world were they going to get away with robbing some banks? They hadn't even been successful at stealing cars. But the more Howard talked to him about it, the more it sounded like it, you know, might be a pretty good idea. And Kevin thought, you know, Howard's a great businessman. He's been successful up until the bust. Why not? What do I have to lose? So he agreed to rob banks with Howard. On December 14th, 1987, Howard and Kevin robbed their first bank. Howard had been checking out the Bright Bank on Burnett Road. It was in a strip mall that was less from a mile from Howard's home. Again, maybe don't do things so close to your house, Howard. But I guess it was convenient. Howard decided that the perfect getaway car was a gold Porsche 928 from his very own parking lot. In fact, the Porsche had been sitting point at his lot. What that means, you know, when you see the car lots and there's always that one car sitting up on kind of like that stand where it really stands out. Howard said, you put the best car on your lot on point so everyone can see it. So that's the car that Howard thought would be the great getaway car for them. You know, bright, flashy, fast, not some, you know, inconspicuous Buick or Ford gold Porsche because you know no one's ever going to notice that at five o'clock that afternoon 
Kevin met Howard at the car lot. Howard gave Kevin an unloaded 9mm pistol. They didn't want to shoot anyone after all. They just wanted some money. But they thought it would look good while they were robbing the bank if Kevin had a gun. Kevin stuffed some toilet paper in his mouth as part of his disguise. I couldn't find an explanation on why toilet paper in the mouth was good. Maybe to disguise his voice. Not really sure. Then they wrote a note on an index card in red ink. Because Howard said red ink stood out and it made people pay attention. I don't know if that matters. But the red ink card demanded money from the teller that Kevin was planning to hold up. Kevin decided on his wardrobe because after all, this was his area of expertise. He wore a black knit hat and a black leather jacket because he, you know, he wanted to look the part of a bank robber. Right before the lobby closed at 6 p.m., Kevin walked into the bank. Howard waited outside in their flashy car. Kevin was in and out of the bank in less than five minutes and he had a bag full of money. This time, the duo was successful. They netted about $3,500 and the two were hooked. Kevin and Howard decided robbing banks was where the money was at and they could do this. So they zoomed off in the Porsche, drove it back over to the lot, parked it right back out in front where it had been before. And Howard told Kevin, go on back to your house. We'll split the money. So Kevin and Howard got together. They each got about $1,700. Howard was responsible with his money. He used it to pay off some of his bills. But, you know, $1,700 barely put a dent in his big old debt to the IRS and everything else. Kevin, on the other hand, used his money to party. He told, he gave his money to a friend and said, get him a fancy hotel room, some drugs, and he was going to find him a woman to party with. Well, the friend didn't do so hot. He got him a room at the Motel 6. I don't know about you, but that does not say fancy to me. Kevin was also disappointed with this pick. And instead of getting him some marijuana or some cocaine like he was used to, he got him some crack. Well, Kevin had never done crack and neither had the girl that he was with, but he convinced her to party with him anyway. Nothing went the way Kevin had planned. They really spent the night throwing up all night long. It was not the party that Kevin envisioned. And after three days, his money had run out. So Kevin called Howard and said, hey, what's our next move? I'm out of cash. Howard, of course, needed more cash to pay some more of his bills. So he said, you know, there's another branch of Bright Bank on Research Boulevard. It's a great spot. And it's just minutes from my house. So on December 18th, Kevin met Howard at the dealership again. This time, Kevin changed his outfit up a little bit. He wore a ski mask, left the toilet paper behind, and put on a different black jacket. They drove the gold Porsche off the lot and robbed Bright Bank on Research Boulevard. Again, they got $3,500. Again, Howard is responsible, paid some more bills. Still, didn't do much for him, but at least it was progress. Kevin, on the other hand, was living life large. That night, he was relaxing, feeling good about life. He had some cash in his pocket. He was laying on the bed watching TV. The news came on. And there it was, reported. 
a team of bank robbers were using a gold Porsche as their getaway car. The media labeled them the gold Porsche bank robbers. On top of that, someone had seen them as they drove off. But luckily for our two criminal masterminds, the police didn't have much information. No one really got a good look at the two. And all they had was the make of the car. So this made them feel brave. You know, no one really knew what they looked like, just that they drove a gold Porsche. So they decided on December 21st that they were going to rob the first federal savings bank on Burnett Road. Another bank that was right there in Howard's neighborhood. Not only was it in Howard's neighborhood, he had had an account there for a while because it was such a great place to bank. They decided that this time they better not use the Porsche. I mean, after all, it's been spotted now. And they took a less conspicuous car off of Howard's lot, a Chrysler. Now, the teller at First Federal Savings Bank said that Kevin was very kind. And he really even seemed almost sweet the day that he robbed the bank. He was cordial and polite. He said, thank you. And yes, ma'am and no, ma'am. But during the robbery, Kevin got distracted. One of the tellers was beautiful. And as she walked across that, that lobby to get the money he needed, he was so distracted by her beauty, he let the gun drop down to his side. And even the tellers noticed that for a little bit, something was off. But as soon as the teller opened that cash drawer, he snapped back into business and regained his composure. As he was leaving, he had to stop and pick up money that was falling out of the bag. This was their best score yet. He couldn't believe it. He stopped at the door and said, thank you, ladies, then walked on out. Now, like I told you, this was their most profitable robbery yet. The pair got $8,000 this time. They drove around the corner to Howard's house where Kevin took some of the cash for himself. Then they stashed the rest of the money, the gun, Kevin's ski mask he decided to wear, and a jacket in the corner of Howard's garage. Kevin left with his money to celebrate, and Howard drove his car back over to the lot and parked it on his own car lot. Again, Howard, Kevin, don't stash your stuff right there in one of your houses. Find another spot to hide your stuff. I'm sure you can all figure out this is going to come back to bite him in the butt, and it does. Well, while Howard was at the dealership parking his car, his neighbor called him. He told Howard there were about 15 police cars parked around his house, double that many officers in flak jackets surrounding the whole house. He said there was a Starflight helicopter hovering over the whole scene. Howard and Kevin didn't realize it, but when they robbed the First Federal Savings Bank, they didn't just get out of there with money. This time, the, the teller had slipped a little radio transmitter into the bag, too. So, police were able to track them right back to Howard's house. At first, the police thought that the robber had to be hiding in Howard Farr's home. There was no way that Howard was the bank robber. The police were worried that the family could possibly be being held hostage inside the house. So, the police went in expecting to find a hostage situation. But when they broke in, the house was empty. They quickly moved for the house and ascertained no one was home. 
and followed the transmitter out to the garage. That's where they found the money, the gun, and Kevin's clothes. You can't make this up, folks, and it's only about to get better. Kevin's name, address, and phone number had been written in the jacket that he wore to rob the bank and permanent marker by his grandma because all of Kevin's life, his grandma had written his name, his address, and phone number in every stitch of clothing Kevin owned just in case it got lost so someone could return it to Kevin. Well, obviously, this is going to help the police. Now, Howard tried to brush all this off and act like it was no big deal. But as the police were trying to figure out what in the world was going on, the lieutenant looked up and noticed that there was a well-dressed man trying to sneak in the back door of the house. It was Howard. Now everyone said, this is not normal. This is the strangest behavior. Howard said, no, no, no. You don't understand. I'm not the kind of person that panics. I was just coming in to try to figure out the situation. Howard, Howard, Howard. You need to just walk up to the police. Act shocked. Say, what is going on? Don't sneak into your back door, dude. Well, Howard agreed to go to police headquarters for questioning, where then he decided to feign shock. But he soon decided that it would be better for him just to ask for an attorney. It wasn't looking good for Howard. Kevin Hutchinson had no idea what was going on. He was still thinking life was great, that they had gotten the most money they'd ever made yet, and he was feeling good. Until that night, when he turned the TV on, and the news announced that they had Howard Farr, and they were questioning him. They said he had been arrested for being one of the gold Porsche bank robbers, and police were looking for Howard's accomplice. Now, at this point, Howard and Kevin are going to try to stick together because they don't want to snitch on one another. But as you can figure out, that's going to fall apart pretty soon. The camera panned around Howard's driveway and then stopped on Kevin's jacket. Kevin knew at this point the jig was up. It wasn't going to take some wonderful investigation to open up that jacket and see his grandma's handwriting with that permanent marker with his name, address, and phone number on it. The next day, Kevin went ahead and confessed to his brother what he did. His younger brother, Junior, jumped up and ran out of the house without saying a word. When he came back, he had a police officer with him. That's some brother. He didn't even try to help him out. He was like, this is on you, bro. He immediately got the police involved. He told Kevin that the officer wanted to talk to him. Kevin agreed on one condition. He wanted the officer to take him to the restaurant of his choice. Kevin had been in jail, remember? He had spent the night in jail after he robbed, after he had been caught stealing the car, and he knew the food wasn't great. So he wanted to make sure he at least had one good meal. The officer agreed, told Kevin to pick the place. Of all the places he picked, Taco Bell. I don't get it. 
you're going, you said the pick of your choice. If I'm getting to pick anywhere to eat, Taco Bell would not be my pick. I'm going to pick something fancy, maybe a steakhouse. And I'm going to take advantage of it and have all the good stuff. Kevin was not thinking. Imagine that. At first, like I said, Kevin didn't want to sell Howard out. But eventually he gave in when the police officer told him, hey, your butt's on the line. You're going to get in trouble just like Howard. And if you don't agree to cooperate, you're going to be in just as much trouble. So Kevin thought about it and he took the deal. He confessed. He was only going to be charged with one robbery. On December 29th, Howard Farr was charged with three counts of aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon. That meant he was going to have to serve anywhere from five to 99 years in prison. Everyone who knew Howard was shocked, including his family. And Howard was pissed. He said Kevin was a snitch. Kevin was mad because he was on TV and his hair was nappy. Howard posted bail and was able to await his court date at home. Now, at first, Kevin couldn't afford bail and he was going to have to wait things out in jail. But the district attorney's office decided that he would be more likely to continue to cooperate if he was at home. I mean, wouldn't you be in a better mood if you got to wait things out at home? So in March of 1988, they released Kevin back home. After all, they wanted a happy witness. Kevin pled guilty and received 10 years in prison, but he wouldn't have to start serving that time until Howard's trial was over. And Kevin lucked out because he remained free from the remainder of that year. And that time, Kevin married his girlfriend, but that didn't last long. It was over in three weeks, and she filed for divorce. He was feeling guilty for it because he was a financial drain on his family, and at this point, he was a social pariah. So he tried to work several odd jobs. Those didn't really pan out. He got a job as a busboy at a restaurant and was hoping to work his way up as a waiter. This is what I don't get. Kevin has these big dreams of being a movie star, but other than his disc jockeying, he just goes, I guess he goes back to what he knows, waiting, waiting tables. And I guess, you know, probably there's not a lot of people who are wanting to hire someone on trial for armed robbery. Howard and his family lost their house and his business went completely under. So things were even worse for Howard than they were for Kevin. Howard also ended up going back to jail because he sold a car off his lot that, didn't, that he didn't have a title to. Well, that resulted in a new felony charge against him. So that earned him a stay in jail for two weeks. Howard hoped that he could reach a plea bargain for his crimes. He held out for the best offer he could get. After all, in his mind, he had never been convicted of a crime before, and until now, he'd been an upstanding guy. Negotiations went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the district attorney had a solid case, but he was worried that a jury might be sympathetic to a good guy who had fallen on hard times like so many other Texans during the bust. After all, most of those Texans who would be sitting on a jury would be in Howard's position, and he thought, you know, they might be sympathetic to this guy and he might walk free completely. Eventually, on November 29th, 1988, 
Howard Farr pleaded guilty to three counts of armed robbery. He was sentenced to 12 years at the Texas Department of Corrections. But Howard wasn't giving up yet. He had friends and family write letters saying all the good things about Howard. He was such an upstanding guy. This would never happen again. It was a one-time deal based off of his desperate financial situation. Howard would never repeat offend. And on top of that, he said, you know, it costs a lot to house an inmate. I think I am the perfect person for an ankle monitor. Just put me on probation for those 12 whole years. I'll wear the ankle monitor and you don't have to clothe and feed me or anything else. Just monitor me. Promise I'll be good. Kevin's sentence got reduced to robbery instead of armed robbery, and he was sentenced to the 10 years, but he would be eligible for parole after serving 10 months' time. Now, no one went, no one at the DA's office went for Howard and his ankle monitor. So he was scheduled to go begin his sentence on January 3rd, 1989. But you know Howard. Early in the morning on December 31st, a police officer in Williamson County which Williamson County is just one county over from Travis County, which is where Austin is located. So less than an hour away. A Williamson County police sheriff's officer pulled over an automobile transport trailer for a routine traffic stop. The taillight was out. After a closer look at the vehicle and the trailer, the officer figured out that the driver at the wheel was driving a stolen vehicle. The driver was Howard Farr. Again, Howard, get it together. My Lord, dude. I mean, it's stolen. You're about to go to the clink. Why don't you check your trailer lights, man? The rumor was that Howard was making a last-ditch effort to get some cash together for his wife before he went off to prison. Obviously, that didn't work. So instead, Howard spent New Year's Eve in jail. Both men told reporters that they were going to use their time in prison to take advantage of the education courses that they could take. Howard was taking some computer courses and, you know, he said it wasn't all that bad at the Iron Bar Motel. That's what he called prison because in usual Howard fashion, he was going to make the best of it. Kevin was going to try out some new material on the inmates. After all, he had a captive audience and he decided he was going to hone his comedian skills while he was in jail. Also, take some computer courses, try to learn some new things so that when he got outside, maybe he'd be ready for show business, but also have some skills to fall back on. I tried to find out what happened to the two after their prison sentences ended and what once they got out of prison, but I couldn't find a thing about either of them. I hope that means that they both stayed out of trouble after their brief stint as bank robbers, because as we can tell, neither one of them were good criminals. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, please tell a friend. If you like Texas True Crime, let them know about the podcast. I would really appreciate that. As we've said before, word of mouth helps more than anything. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you about today's episode. Also, any ideas you have for new episodes. I've gotten some great tips from you guys. 
and I'm working on those right now. Tell me your ideas. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook, Texas True Crime Podcast. You can send me an email, Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you. Please remember, subscribe and leave me a five-star review. Have a great week and I'll see you next time. Bye.